Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Advent, week three, we're preparing our hearts for the arrival of Jesus. We've been using this passage, Messianic Prophecy, from Isaiah 11 to help, uh, to help focus us. It'll be there on the screen. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And uh, just backdrop for that, which is important for us. It sounds like a history lesson, but it's important because one of the things that we've been trying to hold on to is that because God is faithful, we can be hopeful. So seeing how God has honored his word in the past gives us confidence as we look forward to an unknown future. So the the context in which this word was given, it was not great. It, It was given in 735, 734 BC to the people of Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Israel. And they were in a tough spot. They were in the middle of a, of a war, and they'd already lost one battle huge. They were fighting the Syrians and the Ephraimites. They won one battle, according to Second Chronicles. They lost 120,000 soldiers. They're in bad shape. And then, depending, regardless, really, of what happens with that war, they know they've got another enemy, the Assyrians, that are knocking on the door as well. And those guys, nobody's ever beat them. They're undefeated. They're just mowing through towns and nations, and they're... They're terrorists. We've said that before. They literally are terrorists. They don't just beat people. They terrorize them. And so that's what they're living in. And they've got a godless, wicked king named Ahaz making decisions. Very, very difficult situation. In the midst of that, God wants to give hope and encouragement and comfort to his people. And so he sends Isaiah, a prophet, and says, tell them these things. Tell them these things. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, that's some of what Isaiah is telling them. And it's hopeful. Remember we said a lot of these prophecies have two fulfillments. There's a short-term fulfillment that the people who heard it for the first time would experience. And then a longer-term fulfillment that we see looking back in Jesus. So if you're living there in the time in 734 B.C., honestly, the thought of Jesus coming 750 years later doesn't do a lot for you. It doesn't help you with the guys that are literally surrounding your city right now. But if you hear, hey, there's another king coming from the family of David, that's Jesse's David's dad. What that lets you know is, wait, if there's a king, then there's a kingdom. So if there's another king coming from the family of David, then somehow in the midst of this mess that we're in, we win. I don't know how we win because we've already gotten drilled one time, but somehow we win. Because there's going to be another king from the family of David sitting on the throne, a branch. And he's going to be way better than Ahaz. The Spirit of God is going to rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. We talked about that last week. That's not about intelligence. That's about reverence. The wisdom of God, excuse me, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's Proverbs 9, 10. Wisdom and understanding is rooted in relationship with God. It's not rooted in how smart we are. Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, he, he starts checking those boxes. So within about 15 years of this prophecy being given, we have a new king named Hezekiah who is from the family of David. This God is with him. He does make decisions that are righteous, righteous being because of his relationship with God. That gives, again, it's the fulfillment of this word. It's not the complete fulfillment, but it means a lot to the people who are there in the moment. 
we can look back and say, well, it's fully fulfilled in Jesus, who is also a son of David. And the Spirit of God rested on him, remained on him. We can see that from his baptism all the way through the end of his ministry. We talked last week about the, the wisdom and the understanding that Jesus displays, particularly when he's dealing with his enemies who are trying to discredit him and to destroy him. But I want you to hold on to both of those things. The, the stuff about Hezekiah, it's important for, for me, it's important because that's where a lot of us find ourselves. It's easy, looking back 2,000 years, to think about Jesus kind of almost in a, he, he, it, it almost becomes a mythical way. It's not tangible and real to us. Yes, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. What does that do for me on Tuesday when I'm experiencing a difficult situation? It's, again, remember, just like God wanted to bring hope and encouragement, strength, comfort to his people 2,700 years ago, he wants to do the same thing Today, because he's faithful, we can be hopeful. Today, counsel and might. You know might, that's strength. That's an easy one. Counsel, a little bit tricky. When we hear the word counsel, we tend to think of advice. So Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, that's one of the most famous Messianic prophecies. Wonderful counselor does not mean great therapist. That's not who's coming. That counsel... Uh, from a king. Kings don't give advice. That's not what they do. We're talking about a king. Kings make plans. Kings devise strategies. That's what it means to be a wonderful counselor, someone who plans wonderful things, wondrous things, someone who makes plans to do wonders, things that cause awe in other people. To say the spirit of counsel and might is to say, we're going to have a king who devises strategies and makes plans and has the ability to execute those plans and strategies. And all of this is because the Holy Spirit rests upon him. It's not because he's a great guy. It's because the Spirit of God is resting upon him. And, and two of the manifestations of that uh, presence are counsel and might. And those things go hand in hand. It doesn't do any good to make great plans if you can't execute. And it doesn't do any good to execute bad plans. So those two things go hand in hand. When we think king, sometimes it's just it's where we live when we think royalty, we can think like Queen Elizabeth or Prince Charles or Prince Harry, and they're, just, they're famous for being famous, really, more than anything else. I'm sure they serve some, they, they serve some function, but it's largely ceremonial, uh, their functions. And so for us, we can lose sight during Isaiah's time. A king led the army. Think of Aragorn, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or you've read it. Think that, not Prince William or Prince Harry. If you're in Judah... What you want to know, if you're in the crosshairs of three nations, none of whom you can defeat on your own, it's really comforting to know God's going to send a king and he's going to anoint him to create battle plans that will actually lead to victory and he's going to anoint him to execute those things. We're not going to lose. Because remember, when you lose, usually you're dead. It's comforting for you to recognize hey, this, is who's, this is the king who's coming. We've got a wicked, godless king, Ahaz. We're get, God's going to raise up a new king who he will be with, who's going to have wisdom and understanding. He's going to know what to do. He's going to be able to see to the heart of a matter. And he's going to be able to make battle plans and execute those plans that lead to victory. That's what you're looking for. Not a great therapist and not, again, just kind of a figurehead king, someone who's going to lead you in battle. Hezekiah is that guy. We don't see a lot. It's just a snippet. 
uh, in Second Chronicles and in Second Kings. Second Chronicles is talking about Ahaz, his dad's reign, and, and it says that during his time, Judah lost some cities. There's a list of six cities up there behind me. You don't know where any of those are. It's on the Philistia and Judah border each other. So it's like us in Alabama. And during that time, the, Phil, the, the Philistines just encroached on Judah's territory, which is like Alabama moving the, the border. They cross the Chattahoochee and they just keep coming. Because Judah is compromised, they're fighting other battles, the Philistines are able to take advantage of that, and they take some cities in this border area. When Hezekiah becomes king, he takes all that back. Counsel and might. He's able to take back cities that his dad lost because God is with him. It matters, particularly if you live in one of those cities. It's a big deal. But what about for us when we think about Jesus? How does he display counsel and might? How is he a wonderful counselor, mighty God? When we hear mighty God, we tend to think of God in a divine way. When that was written, that's not, that wouldn't have been the thinking. It would have been God's warrior, God's hero. How is Jesus kind of this wonder-working planner, this guy that creates these great plans and strategies? And then mighty God, one of God's, or, or really the hero for God, the, the warrior that God has sent. I think we see it primarily through his miracles. I don't know if you've ever thought of Jesus' miracles in that way before. It's easy for us to focus on the miracles in terms of what does it mean for the individual. God touched this person, and it's an expression of compassion. It's, a, it's an expression of love. And, we, and those stories are wonderful, and absolutely, yes. But the miracles are more than that. In, in the Gospel of John, there's seven miracles, and they're called signs. They're not called miracles. They're called signs. A sign is an event that points to something greater than itself or beyond itself. The miracles that Jesus performed, it's not just about the people who he touched. It's also about what's being communicated through that event. And what's being communicated is that he's the king, and his kingdom, his rule, and his reign is coming with him. That's what's being communicated. Not just that he's compassionate, although he is. Not just that he's loving, although, that, although he is. But that he's powerful. That he's a king and he's pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And he's establishing the kingdom of light. Everywhere he goes, that's what he's doing. By what he says, he's proclaiming the kingdom. And what he does, he's demonstrating the kingdom. You see this in a really succinct way in Mark 4 and 5. Mark 4 begins with some parables, and in those parables, Jesus is teaching. He's saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Remember, kingdom is rule and reign. This is what the rule and, re this is what the rule and reign of God looks like. And he's teaching these parables. And then beginning in Mark 4, I think it's 35, you see back to back to back to back four miracles that, that Jesus performs. And each one of them... I see as a display of his power. What he's showing is I'm the king over one of these forces that wreaks havoc in your life. These are the things that disrupt you. These are the things that distress you. These are the things that disturb you. These are the things that you can't control. This is what brings chaos into your life. And I'm showing that I'm more powerful than each one of these things. I wish we had time to go through all four. We don't. You can read them this week, uh, beginning Mark 4, uh, verse 35, all the way through Mark 5. First, Jesus calms a storm, power over nature. If you're a farmer, you're completely at the mercy of the rain. You're at the mercy of the weather. Your livelihood depends on it raining at the right time and in the right amount. Jesus is showing, I'm king over the, I'm king over the weather. If you're a fisherman, storms are bad news for you. 
People get shipwrecked. People drown. I'm king over that. I'm more powerful even than the disruptive forces of nature. Then he goes, he crosses the lake, and he, and he delivers a guy who's demonized, a guy who's demon-possessed. We see Jesus exercising his power over Satan and over demons. Then he comes back to the other side of the lake, and he heals a, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and he raises a girl from the dead. And those two stories are sandwiched together. In both of those things, he's showing his power both over sickness and over death. He heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. The Bible says that she spent everything she has on doctors and she hadn't got better. She's gotten worse. She's a hopeless case. And Jesus heals her. And he kind of does it accidentally. She reaches out and grabs his robe. That's how powerful he is. He doesn't even know she's doing it. Then he raises a little 12-year-old girl from the dead. Even death is not stronger than him. Back to back to back to back. Jesus is showing, I'm the king. I don't fight enemies the way Hezekiah fought enemies or the way David or the way Saul. I, it's not that kind of, I'm not that kind of king and I'm not leading that kind of army and we're not fighting those kinds of enemies. But the, the forces that create chaos in your life, the forces that destroy, the forces that disturb, the forces that distress, I'm stronger than every one of those. We all need that. We live under the illusion of control because of technology more than anything else. We think we're super, super smart, and we think we've got everything under control until we don't. Jesus is the king. What's disrupting your life today? What's disturbing your life today? What threatens to destroy your life today? He's demonstrated. He's stronger than that. He's more powerful than those forces. Mark 5. Let's read this real quick. Just one of those four stories. I think in this one, we see the conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light most clearly. I think out of the four, these four miracle stories, I think this is the one, again, where we see that. We see Jesus and Satan going toe-to-toe. Uh, and again, I think you see the contrast between Satan's agenda to steal, kill, and destroy and Jesus' agenda that we would have life and have it to the full. They, that's the, that's the disciples with Jesus, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When this man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we're many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, 
but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. They were all filled with wonder. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. We see that in this story. There's a lot that we could say. I want to focus again just on that word might and counsel. How do we see those things playing out in this story? Uh, the, the might, the strength is very clear. The before and after of this guy can't be more stark. I don't know that there's anyone, certainly in the Gospels, and I'm trying to think, I don't know that there's anybody in all of the Bible who's in worse shape than this guy when Jesus meets him. Lazarus is dead, and he's in better shape than this guy is. Seriously, think about it. Think about his life is a nightmare. Think about the way he's described. He has an impure spirit, which is a super polite way of saying he's infested with demons. The demon says our name is Legion because we're many. A legion is 6,000 Roman troops. I don't think the guy's got 6,000 demons in him, but there's more than one. And we just said, what's the job description of the devil and therefore of those working for him? It's stealing and killing and destroying those beings are running this guy's life. People whose are beings whose, whose only agenda is destruction. Think about that. If nothing else, just that. But there's more. He lives in a graveyard. Nobody wants to do that. He's been driven out from his family, from his hometown, so he's completely isolated and cut off relationally. He's got no clothes. Who knows what he's eating? Who knows how he's staying warm when it gets cold? We read this, this thing about him being chained is very interesting to me. I'm wondering if the townspeople are trying to chain him up because they're afraid of him, even though there's no indication that he does anything. Could be for sure. I would think he'd be a pretty scary guy. He's obviously, when these demons come on him, is really strong if he's breaking these chains. But I've also wondered, I don't know that this is true, I just wonder if in moments of clarity and lucidity, if he says, guys, will y'all lock me up? Because look what he does when he's not locked up. Wailing night and day, cutting himself with stones. So if those are my two choices, if I'm free, all I'm going to do is hurt myself, then lock me up. Keep me, like protect me from me. I don't know if that's what's going on. Either way, miserable nightmarish existence. Nothing good about it. And then Jesus shows up. And it's amazing how complete the transformation is. Isn't it? Jesus casts the demons out. Then when the townspeople see this guy, he's seated at Jesus' feet. That's a posture of discipleship. It, it signifies salvation. We see that he wants to follow Jesus. He's been spiritually set free. All those demons, however many there were, they're all gone. Think about, He has a sound mind now. He's in his right mind. Think about that. Some of you have struggled at times, and it's not because of demons, but you've struggled at times with your own thought life and how disconcerting that can be when you can't trust what's going on in your own head. And then now this guy has a sound mind. All of those voices have been shut down. There's no, nothing's, no tapes are playing in there leading him to do destructive things. He's dressed, I don't know where the clothes came from, but he's dressed now. 
Jesus sends him home. He wants to follow Jesus. And he says, no, go home. He sends him back to community. He sends him back with a purpose and a job. Tell people about what I've done. He's one of the first missionaries in the church. Was this guy. He has this assignment from Jesus. Every chain that the enemy put on him, Jesus broke. In every place that he was broken, Jesus restores him and makes him whole. It's a phenomenal story of what happens when Jesus comes on the scene, when he shows his power as king. This is what it looks like for the rule and reign of God to come into our lives. Power, might, mighty God fighting for this guy. Part of the story that's easy for us to overlook, which to me is some, I think it's maybe the most profound element. There's no reason for Jesus to be here. None at all. So he gets in a boat with his disciples after teaching. That's when he calms the storm. They wind up on this side of the lake intentionally. And there's no reason for them to be there. It's a Gentile area. Jesus is a Jew. So are his disciples. That makes it unclean. He's unclean just walking around. He's in a graveyard. Strike two. That's also unclean. The the thinking was if you even step on a grave, then you're unclean. And there's a pig farm. Strike three. Those are unclean animals. There's no reason at all for Jesus to be there. And notice what he does. As soon as he sets this guy free, he gets in a boat and he leaves. It wasn't like he was on the way to this other thing and he just ran into this fella. It really, I can't prove this, but it certainly looks like the only reason he got in the boat and traveled to this region was to meet this guy. That's what it appears to be, to me. Whether this guy's infamous or whether Jesus is just led by the Holy Spirit, probably more likely, he gets in the boat, crosses to the other side just to meet this guy, just to set him free, then he gets in a boat and leaves. Again, three strikes, no reason for him to be there as a Jewish rabbi. But he is. I think about that in terms of the council piece. Jesus had a plan, and it involved going after this guy. And he still does that. He comes after us. The thing with the pigs, sometimes we get hung up on that. Those are certainly first world problems. We're more worried about the pigs than we are the guy. A couple of things. I think you see the worth of this guy. He's worth more than 2,000 pigs, which weren't, that's not nothing. That's somebody's livelihood. But he's worth more. And I think even more than that, what's communicated through the pigs, I think it's, it's an outward demonstration. Nobody's going to forget. Animals don't drown themselves. That's not natural behavior. So to see a whole herd of pigs jump off a cliff and drown themselves, something is inciting them to do that. Again, think about this guy and the labels that are all over him with the people who live in the town. Some of whom may have actually, his mom lives there. I mean, some of, I mean, I'm sure that there was some, there's some relationship there. It's just all been broken because of his situation. The, these pigs jumping off a cliff, that, that shows every, something happened here. This isn't just a momentary um, episode of clarity and lucidity and sanity. There's, some, there, there's been a transformation here because pigs don't do that. So whatever was in him, and it does show you what the demon's ultimate desire was, what they did to the pigs, they were doing to this guy just really, really slowly. This is the picture of what happens. And again, I think it shows the worth of this guy and Jesus' willingness to make sure everybody knows, hey, he's a new man now. And it's not just because I'm sitting here. He's going to be this way because what was in him is no longer in him. And so what about you this morning? Where do you need counsel and might, not advice, 
Where do you need counsel and might? Where do you need to see Jesus as a wonderful counselor and mighty God for you? That story of the demoniac is so extreme. It's so easy for us to be like, eh, not me. I'm dressed. I got a house. I'm in my right mind. I'm not cutting myself. That's not me. But for some of you, parts of that story do ring true. Some of you are cutting yourself. Literally. Jesus can set you free if you'll let him. That's a hard one to admit. But if you will, he'll set you free. Some of you think about hurting yourself. And then they're not fleeting thoughts. If you'll let him, he'll set you free. Some of you, you got, there's There's chains. Alcohol, pornography, eating disorders, all hard things to admit. But if you'll let him, he'll set you free. For some of you, it's different. It's one of those other stories. It's calming the storm. We didn't have time to talk about that, but that's your life. You're in a boat, and that boat is getting tossed and turned, and you're going, Jesus, you're asleep. Do you even care? He'll calm the storm. Some of you are that woman. It's been a long time since you've been healthy. You spent everything you got. You're not getting any better. No doctor can help you. He can heal you. Some of you, it's that little girl. There's something that's died. And if you'll let him, he'll bring it back to life. I don't know what any of those things look like practically. I just know he's the king over all of them. I know he's more powerful than all of the things that bring distress and destruction and chaos into our lives. All of the things that distress us. He's demonstrated that he is stronger than. And so all we want to do this morning is just to ask. We've read your gift tags. We've been praying through those. And some of those things, those, you need, to, you need a, wonder, a wonderful counselor and a mighty God to work in those circumstances. <laughs> We'll have ministry teams up here, Chad and Autumn, are going to come back and lead us in worship. And I want to just ask you, if that's you, some of that stuff can be hard to admit. Again, we want to have it all together. We want to fix it ourselves. We don't want to show weakness. But that, not to pile on, that's just, our, that's just our flesh. It's just pride. None of us have it all together. None of us can fix it. We all need a Savior. That's why he came. And we all need a king. And that's who he is. You guys can stand and let's pray. Ministry teams, y'all come up. Y'all, come up. y'all can go ahead and start making your way forward if this something's stirring in your heart. Jesus, we thank, we're thankful that you're a wonderful counselor and mighty God. We're thankful that you, the spirit of counsel and might, rests upon you. That you devise these incredible plans and strategies that provoke and evoke amazement in people and that you have the power to execute them. And so for those who right now in this room and online who are in need of you as their king, they need to see you fighting on their behalf. Would you do so? No expectation about what that would look like, but would you move powerfully? Would you move quickly? Would you show your strength? We pray, God, that we would see your kingdom coming more fully in our lives than we currently have. Every place where the enemy is stealing and killing and destroying, 
We pray that today we would experience life fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. Thank you.